Have you ever gotten maybe carried away in something that you look back on with real regret? Um, have you ever been in a situation that spun out of control and you found yourself in a place your younger self would have never dreamed of? Uh, have you found yourself in a place where you wished you had never gone and wondering how to get out? Or have you found yourself asking for forgiveness again for something you promised God you wouldn't do again? And if you're like me and you identify with anyone of these things, um, you need to hear this account from the life of Jesus today. And so if you have your Bibles, I'm going to just, to get us going, I'm going to read you the whole story, the whole account that we're going to look at today, uh, starting, we're going to pick it up in John 7, 53, and read through 8, 11. And I'm going to see how much of it I can get through without pausing to comment, because I am usually do that, right? Uh, so we'll see how quick I can get through this. And then we're going to come back and, and teach through some of it a little uh, more slowly. And let me just remind you where we're at in the book of John. So in chapter 7, we see Jesus go up to the Feast of Tabernacles. He goes up late, not when his brothers want him to go, because it's not about celebrity agenda. It's about accomplishing the work that his father sent for him. And so the, two weeks ago, we saw this amazing scripture where Jesus gets up on the great day, the last day of the festival, and, and and as they're pouring an offering of water out on the altar, he says, I am the living water. Anyone who's thirsty, anyone who's, who's looked to this life and has not found satisfaction and fulfillment and still has that empty, that missing something in their life, come to me and drink and find life. Beautiful, beautiful scripture. Well, Jesus causes a huge controversy. People are angry. The temple guards try to arrest him. Well, the leaders of the temple, they send out the guards. The guards actually, instead of arresting him, listen to him, and they're moved so much that they come back with no Jesus. And the scene ends with these just angry, frustrated, like tense, it's actually kind of funny as you read it, uh, scene of the, the religious leaders. And that's where we hit John 7, 53. It says this, then they all went home. Ah, they're all upset. They go home. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. And at dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him. And he sat down to teach them. And the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group. Imagine the shame. Imagine what she's going through. And, and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Now, it's not a good idea to try to trap Jesus, right? If you look at the claims Jesus makes about who he is, um, God in the flesh, you're probably not, it's probably not going to work out on your face, on your Favor, right? We'll see that in a minute. So it says, but Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, 
the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go and leave your life of sin. Now, this is one of the most well-known, well-loved, most powerful passages, I think, in all of the Bible that communicates so much. It's been so important in people's lives. It's been so important in the history of the church. So I want to highlight a couple things from this passage. The first thing, uh, if you have, uh, we're, we're going to go back. And so in, in verse 1, it says, Jesus went up to the Mount of Olives. Have you ever wondered what Jesus did at night? Like he's ministering and doing stuff during the day and healing people and all this kind of thing. And then at night, where does he go? It says he went to the Mount of Olives. We know he had some really good friends. Mary, Martha, Lazarus, they had a place in Bethany. Uh, apparently they had an Airbnb. And they kept it open for Jesus. And Jesus and his buddies would come and they'd stay there as they traveled through. And so it, it's very likely um, that it says he went over to the Mount of Olives, which is in the general area where, where Bethany was, and probably stayed with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And then early in the morning, he would get up and he would come. And it says that dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him. He sat down to teach them, to teach them. And I just want to highlight that so many times when we think about Jesus, we, we think about the stuff he did, which is awesome and wonderful and amazing, right? The miracles and um, all the and walking on the water and turning water to wine and all those like amazing things that Jesus did during his life. But we miss sometimes the weight that a lot of Jesus' ministry was teaching the people. See, Paul talks about this, that a, a lion's share, a large part of discipleship, you, you've been called. In fact, if you're a follower of Jesus, your commission is to go into all the world and do what? Make what? Disciples of all nations, right? Doing what? Teaching them. Teaching them to obey all that he has commanded. Um, so, so Jesus gave us this commission. The very notion of a disciple is that of an apprentice or a learner. One who is learning, not just to, to, to receive knowledge, but who is learning so that their life would be transformed so that they would resemble their teacher. That's at the heart of discipleship. In fact, I remember seeing uh, this video. There's this great teaching by a guy named Ray Vanderland um, that would tour the, the Middle East and, t- and talk. And he did this teaching called The Dust of the Rabbi, where um, as he said, in the heart of discipleship, if you go back to the first century, they would literally, the disciples would follow their rabbis so closely, they would be covered with the dust of their rabbi's feet. And it's this beautiful picture for learning and growing and becoming like your teacher. And so Jesus taught them. And I think this is so important because Paul talks about being um, transformed by the renewing of your mind. Jesus talks about, um, he quotes back in Deuteronomy, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, what? Mind and strength. And I think many times in church, we swing towards focusing on um, feeling, 
which is great. I, I, we believe that, you know, faith is something to be experienced. Talked about that a couple weeks ago. It's not just this, like, taking in information, right? It's transformational. It's something to be experienced. I love worship. I love experiencing the presence of God, feeling and move in my life, all of those things. But many times um, we forget that our faith is about having our minds renewed and transformed to begin to think like Jesus, because culture is discipling you 24-7. All day, every day, you are being discipled by culture to think like culture, right? In the, in the uh, first century, it was to think like the Roman Empire, like a good Roman citizen. And you have a unique calling, if you're a follower of Jesus, to actually live your life as a citizen of two places, with your primary citizenship being in the kingdom of heaven. As a follower of Jesus to think like a follower of Jesus, to, to apply your life, and then to learn how to live as a, as a stranger and as an alien, we're called, Peter calls us, in, in this world. Because you're going to be thinking differently than the culture thinks about things. You're going to be thinking differently about how it's about learning the Jesus way to think about your relationships and, and your sexuality and your um, relationship with your stuff and generosity and all these kinds of things that Jesus talks about. And part of being a disciple is to be under the teaching of the master and having your mind continually renewed. We have a, a value around here. It's called uh, being biblically serious, responsive to the Holy Spirit. It's one of uh, you know, our primary missions here. We want to be very serious about teaching the scriptures because they're the very words of God that apply to us. And we look at them and say, how, how do these amazing words of God apply to us and influence and teach us about how to live our lives and how to think in the 21st century, right? And then also to live responsive to the Holy Spirit, that we would be functioning in the gifts of the Spirit, that we would be following, we'd be sensitive to the Holy Spirit day by day in our, life, in, in our lives as he teaches us and tells us to, gives us direction. And, and in living this way, we'd live the Jesus way, right? And you know, I think a lot of churches and a lot of people, if we're honest, we tend to swing one way or the other. We tend to swing towards either just like intake of dry knowledge, right, that oftentimes doesn't connect with our heart and we're just always learning and gathering more information, or we tend to swing towards just sort of, sort of feeling and goosebumps and, you know, sort of the, the loosey-goosey. Um, and, and as a church, our goal is, is to walk the radical middle, that we would be both faithful, we would be very serious about digging de deep in Scripture, and we'd be very responsive to the Holy Spirit on a day-to-day -day basis in our lives. That's our goal. And because of this, I actually want to highlight something about this text that you may have read your whole life and actually not been um, aware of. Does anybody in the room actually have a paper Bible? You know, old school? A few of you. Okay. Now, if you, if you do, you're going to see this, and you may not have ever really stopped to look at this. But this whole section in my Bible is actually in italics. And there's this little note right at the top that says this, the, early, the earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have John 7, 53 through 8, 11. A few manuscripts include these verses, holy or in part, and then he goes on to list other locations in the scriptures, including one in Luke um, where some of the other manuscripts have this. Now, if you're like, what? What, what, are you, what are you talking about, right? This is actually 
a really intriguing thing because this is one of the most loved, valued, and really powerful sections, I think, in the gospel. This, this is a section known as one of the disputed texts in the scriptures. It's known in Latin as the pericope de adultera. You know it as the woman caught in adultery, right? And because we're biblically serious, we, we want to dive into some things when it comes to the Bible that maybe some other places might just sort of glaze over and pass over. And you see, here's why this is important. Here's why, like, I'm going to get to some history, and I know some of you love that, and some of you are like, eyes glaze over. Stick with me, okay? Hang with me, because this is actually really important. Because one of the key arguments that people have made in the past century against the Christian faith is that you really can't trust the, the original, the manuscripts we have of the Bible, that they were so changed and so uh, perverted and stuff was switched around. And they reference like things like this that you're, and take you off guard because you're like, well, my church never told me that when I was a kid. What are, you, what are you talking about? And they bring up these kind of examples that, that somehow, you know, as the texts weren't written until way later, and then errors were introduced as they copied them, and really you can't trust the manuscripts we have of the scriptures to be authentic. And here's the problem with that argument. See, there's only two to three texts in the New Testament that scholars debate and disagree with whether or not it was in the original text or whether this was where it should have been or it should have been somewhere else. This one that we just read, uh, the ending of Mark in chapter 16, uh, people think, well, maybe that was added later. Uh, as you go and study it, you read it, you're like, yeah, it kind of feels a little weird. And then uh, the end of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. How many love that line in the Lord's Prayer? I do. It's like, yeah, right? It's like the bridge of a great song where you're like pumped. And scholars think this probably because of a bunch of reasons wasn't added. Now, here's why this is important. People who study the writings of antiquity, talking ancient Rome, ancient Greece, they know and agree that there is much greater evidence for the authenticity of the early biblical manuscripts than for many other manuscripts in history that we just plain and simply accept as given fact. Homer, remember Homer's Iliad? How many of you had to read that school? Um, Caesar, like our, our uh, stories of Caesar, Julius Caesar, right? In, in these instances, we only have five copies that were written. Um, the, the documents that we've been preserved were a thousand years after the fact. Verses, listen up. 25,000 copies of the New Testament. Some of, many of them from all these different areas and regions, you know, Syria, Egypt, some fragments. Later, you know, we discovered Dead Sea Scrolls with all this biblical evidence, and that was a transforming kind of discovery. And when it came to um, understanding how, how little these documents has changed, and what's amazing about them is as you compare thousands upon thousands of these documents, they are very, uh, there are just min minuscule little differences in them. The, the shocking thing, actually, is that out of all these documents we have access to in history, which is really unheard of, that's why scholars know, like, there's incredible evidence that you can trust these documents. The shocking thing is that there's only two or three texts that are disputed, they were like, well, we don't really know if that was authentic or if that really went in there, right? 
And the, and the thing beyond that is, if you notice, there's not like some big conspiracy theory to hide them. The people that argue the most about this are people that love Jesus and have been arguing about this for years and years. That's why one of our sayings around here is people smarter than us have been arguing about things like this for thousands of years. And there are some things when it comes to theology and stuff, but did you notice uh, in your Bible, it's not like hidden? In mine, it's like this big section. It says right up there, right up front, right? So nobody's trying to hide this when it comes to the scripture. There's a, a, a author, writes on apologetics and a pastor, his name's Mark Clark. Here's what he writes. He says, with over 25,000 ancient manuscripts of the New Testament available for comparison, scholars conclude that no doctrine or ethical practice of Christianity depends on any disputed wording in the gospels. Another way to say this is that essential Christian beliefs are not affected by textual variants in the manuscript tradition of the New Testament at all. As a result, and especially when considered alongside the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in the 1940s, this particular critique, that critique that the gospels aren't trustworthy, you can't trust the manuscripts, has all but faded entirely from academia. Here's the point. You can trust the gospels. You can trust the scriptures. They were written very early. We discovered that last week on Easter, right? You guys remember things from 20 years ago like it's yesterday. And these documents are written very early after the eyewitnesses saw Jesus crucified, dead, buried, and risen. And here's why it's important to talk about this. Um, The same author of that quote I just read, he was doing a podcast, he talks about, with some skeptics. And uh, he was like one of these sort of defending the faith and these guys that had walked away from their, walked away from their, uh, their faith because of a bunch of arguments and different things. And one of these guys says to him, hey, as someone who grew up in the church, they never actually addressed these kinds of questions. They just sort of brushed it aside. If they actually had addressed these kinds of questions, I might still be a Christian. And see, I want you to, to learn about these kinds of things from me and from our, our team here at church. And as you study, not for the first time from some college professor who's going to use it to weaken your faith. Because these arguments that they make are not actually up to date with what we now know about history. Now, so let me just say, if you find questions you don't know the answers to, reach out to us. Reach out to me, reach out to Jason, reach out to our team, because we'd love to help you connect you with some great resources to study that kind of thing. Now, I want to tell you why I really think this specific text uh, in Jesus' life and many, many scholars all around the world actually believe this happened, and it's very important to our faith. In fact, many scholars actually believe there's a strong case that this is exactly right where it belongs in the scriptures. Um, As you go back and study history, there's some early church fathers that writing um, in the 300s, 400s, they, they make the argument that this text actually at the beginning was kind of offensive to people in the first and second centuries. Like they had such a, a harsh view of this sin. They thought Jesus and this story put Jesus as being too light on it. They thought people might get the idea that it's, this is somehow excused or okay. And actually, um, some of them talk about this, like, uh, I'm not going to read these all, but Ambrose in 374 or so, um, he, he says, like, some people, this was just too much for him, the idea that this woman was forgiven, right? 
Augustine, around 400, he said this, certain persons of little faith, or rather enemies of the true faith, fearing, I supposed, lest their wives should be given impunity in sinning, removed from their manuscripts the Lord's act of forgiveness towards the adulteress. As if he who had said, listen to this, as if he who had said sin no more had granted permission to sin. And see, this is what re- like religion over centuries has done so many times is it's like, well, God said this, but I don't think this is quite hard enough. We're going to have to, you know, build up this whole set of rules. This is exactly what the Pharisees did, right? Around things like the Sabbath, 1,500 rules, God has about six. And so they're saying, actually, Augustine's making the argument that very early on, um, this was actually like John said this or wrote this. This was in the very earliest manuscripts, but then it was omitted, in later ones, which is an interesting thing, right? Um, Eusebius, who was the first church historian, he wrote this. He said, Papias, um, who we're told was knew the Apostle John, he was a disciple of the Apostle John, used quotations from the first epistle of John, and likewise also from that of Peter, and has expounded another story about a woman who is accused before the Lord of many sins. Now, he places it in a different apocryphal writing. Uh, Eusebius does. But Jerome, another father of the faith, said this, in the gospel according to John, in many manuscripts, both Greek and Latin, so he's saying there's all these manuscripts, is found the story of the adulterous woman who is accused before the Lord. And so here's the point of this. There's incredible um, history and tradition in the church that says this was a story that originated with the apostle John And this is not just a story. This is an actual event that occurred in the life of Jesus. And so it says, they brought him, Jesus is teaching. Verse 3, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. Oh, hold on. Let me just tell you. You want to hear my theory? Okay. If you don't, I'll just like, like, no, just get on with it, right? Our eyes are glazed over. Um, All right, my theory, I think because they point out some uh, differences in the linguistics and stuff in this little thing, which is one of the arguments, which isn't a very strong argument, but it's one of them that maybe John actually didn't write this. I think, have you ever read a second edition book where the author's like, oh, I need to, I forgot this was so important, I need to go back and put this in, or I need to clarify this because this wasn't taken the right, right way. Have you ever read one of those? I think, this is not the Bible, this is just Tim's uh, speculation, okay? But I think that... Uh, Maybe John, a little later, after he wrote some, some, you know, the original version of John and some copies had circulated around and different things, he's like, oh, man, I forgot to put in one of the best stories. And actually, you know, the Holy Spirit inspired him, and he's like, I'm going to record. I forgot to put in this story because it is so amazing. It so illustrates what I said all the way back in John 1 about Jesus being from the Father, full of grace and truth. And he puts in the story of the woman caught in adultery. A little different language than he used 10, 15 years earlier when he wrote the first edition. I don't know, just speculation. Um, But the point is, so many scholars around the world, whether or not they actually said this is exactly where it belongs, they, they believe, we believe, that this is something that Jesus said and did. And it's so powerful, right? Because as they bring this woman before them who's caught in adultery and make her stand up in the group and say, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. There's so much going on here. You see, in this culture, you have to have two to three witnesses. This is such an interesting part. 
of the story to understand. Um, there had to be two to three witnesses. You couldn't just like say, hey, so-and-so did something and subject them to cancel them, right? Like, actually, this would be a good lesson for us to learn today in our culture. There actually had to be proof, right? There had to be um, witnesses and not just like, hey, I saw somebody sort of that looks fishy sneaking out of the house in the morning. It was like two people had to actually catch them in the act. How did that happen? See, many scholars think that actually um, this was a setup, which I think according to Jesus' reaction and the fact that Jesus is God and knows everything actually makes a lot of sense. But the point is they don't give a rip about this woman. They drag her in. They stand her up in front of Jesus in the crowd, ashamed, broken, terrified. They don't care about her. All they care is using her as a pawn to accomplish their political agenda with Jesus and turn the crowd against him. See, because they know, like, hey, they, they have the suspicion he's not going to stone her because they know they've heard stories about Jesus. And, you know, he's, he let this, this other scene, he lets this, like, known prostitute weep and, like, put perfume on his feet and dry him with the hair. Just shocking. These guys wouldn't even let this woman, like, close to them. And so they have a sneaking suspicion. And if he, they can get him to go against, go on record as being against the law of Moses, uh, then, they, then they've got a great argument. They can turn the crowd. They can twist his words, turn the crowd against him. So it's a trap. They're trying to trap Jesus. They don't care about this woman, right? But I think, you, you want to know why I think this, this account is so important when it comes to our faith? And so, because it so illustrates, like we said, Jesus said, John 1, John says, Jesus came from the Father full of grace and truth. 100% grace, 100% truth. And they're getting him to like be able to accuse him. You're just some bleeding heart liberal, super soft on sin, no standards, like theological liberal, right? Or they can twist it the other way and he'll lose the crowd because he's like this harsh authoritarian. This is what they're trying to do. But this is one of the most beautiful passages that illustrates a key doctrine in the Christian faith, justification by faith. Forgiveness, grace, grace. Paul puts it this way. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. This is at the heart of what, what we have come to believe and understand about our faith of, of what Jesus taught, that you, that Paul says in another spot, we were enemies of God, and yet he reached down first. He, he came after us. He gave us the opportunity to respond to him and to have salvation in life. Not anything we did wasn't our deal. We didn't clean up enough that then he was interested in us. No, while we were still sinners, he died for us. He cared for us. Grace means unmerited favor. It's such a powerful thing. I remember being 13, and I was in Rome, and we were at St. Peter's Cathedral, this giant thing, and next to it is the set of stairway uh, stairs, which was supposedly the set of stairs they relocated from Jerusalem um, where Jesus walked up carrying the cross. And there's these little glass windows all the way up these stairs where there would be um, a spot that they said was a drop of blood from Jesus. And all these, all these um, pilgrims would crawl up these stairs. I remember seeing these people crawl up the stairs, kissing every one of those things. 
And it was an act of sort of trying to humble yourself and make yourself good enough. Martin Luther, these were the exact stairs um, a little over 500 years ago during the Reformation that Martin Luther was crawling up on his knees. When God planted on his heart the scripture, the just shall live by faith. And he gets up, stands up, and walks down these stairs. And it changed history. The Reformation changed history when it comes to, you know, the things they had to do, indulgences and all these things, not knowing where you stood with God. And Luther said, no, the heart of Christianity that's been perverted at this point is this idea of grace, unmerited favor, faith that you don't get in by earning your way in. And see, I think so many people in Christian churches today have um, lived their lives not actually from a standpoint of of gratitude for grace, but um, it's a big term, but it's called, but out of uh, moral therapeutic deism. What this means is sort of ignoring the activity of God in this and finding a therapeutic value in the religious things I do that make me feel better about myself. So if I, I, you know, I'm serving, I'm giving, I'm, I'm doing some really good things, but they never actually understand the heart of grace. And there's this idea that I can just sort of tip the scales in my favor and I'm doing pretty good and I'm doing all right. And if I just keep up with it, you know, and then you feel guilty when you, when you blow it, but then you, you know, you give a little more and then you feel better. The heart of the gospel is you didn't do anything to earn your salvation. You responded and said yes to a free gift that God gave, and you received life. And now anything you do comes as out of gratitude for the fact that you've been forgiven so much. And this text beautifully, beautifully illustrates that. So these Pharisees, they go on, they say, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say, Jesus? It says they were trying to use it as a trap, right? Here's the problem. Actually, if you go back and look at what the law actually said back in Leviticus, you weren't supposed to stone the woman. You were supposed to stone both of them. Now, I know it's hard for us to wrap our minds around this in our modern culture, but several thousand years ago, all around the world, um, people understood in different ancient laws and stuff the gravity of this. And God set up um, some harsh penalties to let them know the gravity of sin. And the opposite side, I think, that sometimes we do in the church today is that we're so familiar with grace that we minimize the gravity of sin. And see, this culture had an understanding of the gravity of sin. They just did not have an understanding of the grace of God. And so they had an issue with this passage, an issue with what Jesus did here. But <laughs> the biggest thing of hypocrisy is where's the dude? The law specifically says both of them, not just one of them, and then because of the, what the law says also, we put two and two together, and it, it appears like this woman was engaged or actually betrothed, um, which they considered a betrothal and engagement actually as being legally married because they had different penalties um, for engaged versus um, married. And so you get this picture there. They drag her out. Where's the guy? Lots of scholars think that, that because of the, the circumstances in this story actually 
the guy may have been in on it. See, because this culture in the first century did what cultures for centuries have done, which is that it minimized the sin of the, the guys involved in this. And it harshly punished the women involved in this. See, Jesus elevates the status of women and children. As you go back and look at history, it's the teachings of Jesus that elevate the status of women and children all around the world in the first few centuries. It's people that looked at what Jesus did and what Jesus said. Again, hard for us to kind of wrap our minds around in our culture today, but even, even, um, even in our culture today, we have kind of language around this, don't we? So we're sort of rushing off. If you think of the names that we call um, people that live kind of more of a loose lifestyle when it comes to their morality or their sexuality, right? What a guy, oh, he's sowing his wild oats. A woman typically gets called much more derogative terms, right? So we still identify this with this a little bit today. Now, pendulum swings, and I think as you look at some of the things happening over the past few years in our culture, um, I think the pendulum may swing back or have swung the other way. But regardless of that, the point is, year after year after year, um, this culture had a habit of minimizing the sin of the, the man and harshly punishing the woman. And here's Jesus saying, where's the guy, I think. It says, but Jesus bent down and started writing, or started to write on the ground with his finger. What did he say? Wouldn't you love to know? Yeah, you and every other scholar in history. And people have been speculating about this for 2,000 years. What did Jesus write? And lots of people, everybody's got their own theory, right? Maybe uh, we think maybe because of some prophetic things, maybe he wrote some of their sins. In fact, maybe he was writing some of the very sins. Maybe he was writing some women's name that only they knew about, like this thing, and a date in their past. And they're like, whoa, how did he know that? He's God. I don't know. He did stuff like that, didn't he? Maybe he was writing, where is Joe, the name of the dude? And they're like, how'd you know? I don't know. Maybe he's just doodling. He's like, these guys are such morons. And he's just like drawing in the sand. We don't really know. But here's the effect. Uh, they keep pestering him. It says they keep questioning him. And finally, he straightens up and he said to them, this is brilliant. Remember that awesome story? of Solomon where he like threatens to cut the baby in half and to discover which one was the right one. You should go back and read it. It's amazing. Like the brilliance and the wisdom of Solomon. Jesus is brilliant. He's king. He's Messiah. The wisest man who ever lived. And he, he says this again, they're waiting to trap him. He's either going to let her off the hook or, and then we'll have something to accuse him with, or he'll lose the crowd. We'll get him either way. And Jesus looks up and says, let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. You've heard the saying, whenever you point your finger at someone else, you have three fingers pointing back at yourself, right? This is Jesus' way of saying, search your heart, guys. See, if you read the Sermon on the Mount, you know Jesus does this thing where he says, you've heard it said don't commit adultery. But I say, if you've ever looked upon a woman with lust, you've ever lingered too long, clicked, you've already committed adultery in your heart. You are already separated from God because of sin. You've maybe not murdered, but you've hated enough that you, there was this thing in your heart 
But who knows, given the right opportunity. See, Jesus always brings it back to issues of the heart. And he looks at these guys and he knows the stuff that's in their hearts, the evil that's in their hearts, the hatred, the jealousy, the covetousness, maybe even the actual sins that are in their past that no one else knows about. Jesus knows about that too. The times that they got away with it and didn't get in trouble, and yet here they are dragging this woman in front of him, and he brilliantly says this. Okay, well, how about um, which one of you guys? No sin. You've not sinned. Um, you've not needed forgiveness. Remember, these guys that are surrounding him, many of these, they had been walking up these stairs year after year after year, coming into the, this happens in the temple courts. They came before the altar where they offered sacrifices for their sins. First, the priests, and then the sins of the people. In fact, in Hebrews, it talks about that. Like, it's built into the system that the priests had to offer first sacrifices for their own sins so that they would have compassion on other people that struggle with sin. Not these guys. And Jesus calls them on it. It says, that at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. I think it's significant that the older ones go first. They'd made that walk up those stairs many more times. I think they might have had a little better awareness and understanding of the condition of their hearts, actually. This is why I think it's so important, like Paul tells us in Titus, the older should teach the younger, and there needs to be this mentoring and discipleship going on. It's so important, right? This is why you need to hang out with some people 10, 20 years older than you that aren't just stuck in the same dumb mistakes in the same place you're stuck in. You need to hang out with some people that have, that have walked the walk a little bit longer. Also, they can encourage you, especially like young parents. Like, it's, it's going to be okay. There will be a day you'll sleep again. Um, it's encouraging. My story, I'm not going to tell you mine. It won't be very encouraging. But some of you, <laughs> like this is why it's so important. We have a value around here called who's next. And the idea is every generation needs to be look, thinking through, like, who am I bringing along with me? Who am I pouring into? We need our older generation, our seniors, to, to not to engage, actually, not to just, like, go to Phoenix and play golf, okay? We need you to engage to be in the game. In fact, in our women's ministry, we got a, a great mentoring program going right now. Our men's ministry has some great discipleship groups going. If you want to be part of one of those, want to get connected in a relationship with somebody, let us know, because that will be a valuable thing in your life. And I think it's very telling that these older guys start peeling off back first. And before you know it, Jesus is looking around, and here's this woman caught in all this shame and condemnation who knows she is standing in front of someone very, very different. And Jesus asked her this probing question, where are they? They're gone. No one, sir. And literally in the, in the Greek, it's no one, Lord. And I think there's this hint that she has an understanding of who this is. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go leave your life of sin. Can you imagine in the midst of the shame and the fear? I mean, she thinks this is all, this is it. 
the humiliation. And the one person who actually had the right to judge her, to throw the first stone, says, neither do I condemn you. But it doesn't just stop there. Why? Because he wants to bring transformation to her life. See, Jesus isn't, this is where so many, like, in this whole grace truth thing, so many people come down and just lean way over on one, and it's grace, and we never actually get around to speaking truth, or it's just all, like, harsh truth, and it's never grace. And Jesus embodies both perfectly. Where he says, I don't condemn you. You get grace. Unmerited favor. Yeah, actually, you deserve it, and so does the, the, the dude they didn't pull in here. But. I don't condemn you. I don't condemn you now. Now, now that you've been forgiven, go live out of that truth. Out of the gratitude of that truth. Out of the reality of grace in your life. Not just earning so somehow I can make my way better and God will be happy. No, God loved you enough. He sent his son. He gave you grace. He saw you in all your reality and he loved you anyway and forgave you. See, the Christian life is a life of living out the gratitude of that. And then when you blow it again, because you will at some point, right? You don't run away from God. You don't click back into, okay, I'm just going to like, you know, beat myself a little harder and like go do these extra 10 push-ups, um, spiritual push-ups. I'm going to read through all of Leviticus as a punishment for myself. In one sitting, These are the kind of mental games we play. No, you, you receive the forgiveness. You confess your sins. He's faithful and just to forgive your sins, cleanse you from all unrighteousness, and then you begin to live out of the gratitude of that. Again, his mercies are new every morning. This is the heart of God. You see, grace is very unsettling for religious people. We want people to get what they have coming. Isn't it interesting that the early, some of the early church had a problem with this? It's like, oh, it's just like, we have a problem with this account from Jesus' life. It's just, there needs to be a bigger penalty. How about the thief on the cross? You never did a good thing in your life. <laughs> I no time to go repent and live better. I still I'll always remember sharing that story of the thief on the cross with my grandpa one week before he died on his deathbed and him embracing Jesus. See, grace is shocking. It's unsettling. See, Jesus is not justifying sin. He's always inviting us to receive grace and leave sin. That Ephesians passage we talked about, by grace you've been saved, a couple verses later, it's why? So that you can live an incredible life of purpose. Like live life the way he designed you to make it. And this kind of living flows out of the revelation of how much you've been forgiven and the grace you've received. Jesus reveals the heart of the Father towards us in the midst of our sin and shame. He reveals the heart of the Father. You know, I've never met a parent of a child who's completely off the rails and walked away from everything they said they believed and as, as a child that doesn't long for their child to come back and experience the true life in Jesus again. Not one. That's the heart of the Father. That's the heart of your heavenly father towards you. There's a Christian leader, um, 
that wrote a book in the 90s that was very popular. Uh, his name is Brennan Manning. The book's called The Ragamuffin Gospel. He's a guy that um, had great wisdom and insight and also had great personal struggles in his life and maybe a deeper understanding of grace than some. I'm going to invite Winston up. We're going to close in a, in a song here in just a minute. But as he comes up, I want to just read this to you. And just ponder these words. He says, put bluntly, the American church today accepts grace in theory, but denies it in practice. Sooner or later, we are confronted with the painful truth of our inadequacy and insufficiency. Some of you are there right now. The good news means we can stop lying to ourselves. The sweet sound of amazing grace saves us from the necessity of self-deception. It keeps us from denying that though Christ was victorious, the battle with lust, greed, and pride still rages within us. He goes on, and a little later he says this, because salvation is by grace through faith, I believe that among the countless number of people standing in front of the Lamb, uh, in front of the throne and in front of the lamb, dressed in white robes and holding palms in their hand, I shall see. And he goes on and he describes a prostitute that he met that fell into this lifestyle, trying to support her family, a young woman who had deep regrets because an abortion she ended up having. She didn't know what else to do in the situation. A pastor who so wanted to be liked that he never spoke hard truth to his congregation. A guy that lived his whole life opposite the ways of God, selfishly for himself, and then embraced God on his deathbed. Like the thief on the cross. And he goes on, he says this, so they're in front of the throne, in front of the Lamb, but how, we ask? Then the voice said, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. There they are. There we are, the multitude who so wanted to be faithful, who at times got defeated, soiled by life, and bested by trials, wearing the bloodied garments of life's tribulations, but through it all, clung to the faith. My friends, if this is not good news to you, you have never understood the gospel of grace. Would you stand? And as we sing this super familiar old hymn today to close, Maybe for you, you need to re-embrace the grace of the Father towards you. Maybe for you, there's an area in your life where you need to hear Jesus' words. Now, go leave your life of sin. Go sin no more. You need to receive grace and walk out of that forgiveness to actually into transformation. Maybe for some of you, you need to receive that grace for the first time. There's no magic formula or prayer. You just cry out to God that you believe in Jesus. He's the son of God. He died and rose again. You embrace the forgiveness he offers you. Place your trust in him. Ask him for life. Let's sing. I'll come back up and pray for you. Lord Jesus, would you remind us always the words you spoke that those who have been forgiven much love much. And would you remind us that we've been forgiven much. And never let us come to the, to the self-righteous point of thinking we actually haven't been. And out of that, would we live lives of gratitude that have been transformed?
for you. We love you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.